Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. We are continuing on uh, through Paul's letter to this young church that has experienced an influx of false teachers. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. We're going to take four verses this morning. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, so to make the promise void. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand this. Father, give us insight as we come to Your Word. Enlighten our minds to see the argument that Paul puts forth to plead with this young church and to plead with our hearts to never leave uh, the promises of salvation in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you for a minute to think back on your week. Was it a tough week? I want you to think of all the things you did. It seems like a lot of times I'll get to the end of a week and I'll be thankful for it and I don't want to redo it. I'm thankful it's over. I'm thankful for God's providence to get me through it. I wonder how your week was. Would you say it was easy? Was it difficult? What if someone said this to you at the beginning of the week? You've all heard this before. God helps those who help themselves. Do you know what verse that is? God helps those who help themselves. It sounds so good, doesn't it? Let's rephrase it. God helps those who trust in their own strength. Same statement. Doesn't sound quite as godly, does it? We all lived a week. We all had responsibilities. We all had things that we went through. Were you helping yourself this week? Were you pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps? Were you trudging through this list of things you had to do? All the pressures? 
Were you thinking God was proud of you at how you were just, you know, I'm just grabbing the bull by the horns. I'm just getting busy. Getting it done. Working hard. It sounds so good. And yet the Gospel is so opposite. Can you believe these words are in the Bible? You know, if, if, if I was going to say, the blank go to heaven, most people would say, the righteous, the good people, the, the ones who aren't evil go to heaven. It makes sense. Good people go to heaven. Good people go to church, right? Paul says in Romans 4-5 this crazy statement, and to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Is that not opposite of the way we think? Let me read it again. And to the one who does not work but believes, well, that sounds like a good thing to do. What do we need to believe? In the God who justifies the ungodly. Isn't that counterintuitive? Especially to American culture where we... Those who work hard get up in the world. Those who, who get back up when they're knocked down. Those who work harder than everyone else. Those who say this statement, God helps those who help themselves. This one might even sound more shocking to you. 1 Timothy 1.12 Paul says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because He judged me faithful. I thank God He's given me strength. Here's the reason why I thank God. He's, he's judged me faithful. Well, what did Paul do? Because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though... Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because, you ready? I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Well, that's an interesting way to choose your servants. You find those who are blasphemers, persecutors, insolent opponents. And then you say, I'm going to give him mercy. Why? Because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. And then he goes on to say, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here's another shocker. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You see, I know I haven't taught you anything. You probably didn't already know. But I wonder if you've been living by faith 
in the truth that you already know. I wonder if your week was marked by everything I do this week, I need to do by the power of your Spirit. And I'm going to receive that power by trusting in your transforming grace by faith. Is that how you attacked your week this week? Saying, I got a lot to do. You see, God does like hard workers. He just doesn't like stupid workers. It's kind of like if my job is to be a truck driver, and every week I go to get into the truck, but it's still empty. There's no gas in it. And the boss, is, my boss is like, what are you doing? You're not getting any of the loads delivered. You have to put gas in the car. That's how we live a lot of times. We say, I know I got this, all this to do, which God probably does want you to do for His glory. By what strength are you going to do it in? How much time are you going to spend praying and relying on God to do what God's called you to do in your life? It's really easy when we just get into the context of these letters and we let our imaginations go, which we need to do to understand, you know, if Paul's writing to the Galatian church, we have to picture the letter. we got to picture them. But it's way too easy to think, they're so stupid. I can't relate to what they continually fall into. So by way of reminder... The Galatian church is a young church, months old. Paul went through and preached the gospel. People got saved. Paul left. Judaizers come in and they say, oh, you're trusting in Christ. Well, that's good. You haven't forgot Moses, have you? You see, Abraham came, then Moses came, And you can't just go with Abraham. You need to trust by faith in Christ, but you also have to follow the law. They were going back to their Old Testament and the Judaizers were making their case. Saying, what are you doing with the law? You're just, you really believe this false gospel Paul's preaching that you're saved by grace, through faith, not by works of the law. And so Paul's writing this letter, and he's not only proclaiming the gospel, he's defending the gospel. And if you're familiar with Paul's letters, he's like the best lawyer that ever lived. I mean, we just have his letter, and it's like, you argue with him. He knows your question before you, before you ask the question. So he asks your question for you, and then he destroys the argument. And then he says, but now you're going to say this, and then he destroys that argument. So we're right in the middle of Paul doing this. In chapters 1 and 2, he defended his gospel that he preached because he said, 
It's not mine. I got it from God. I didn't get it from anyone else. And he defended his authority saying, God has given me my authority. I didn't get it from Peter. I didn't get it from anyone else. God gave it to me. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, he started to lay out his argument that a man is saved, a man and woman is saved by faith and not by works. His first argument was in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. And it was an argument from experience. He simply said this, when did you receive the Spirit? Was it when you followed the law or when you received Christ by faith? When the Spirit is received, the promise of Abraham is completed. This is what the promise is looking to. The new covenant promises were looking for a day where people's hearts were, were renewed, where the Spirit of God was put within them, where there was no longer covenant breakers within the church. And then after his argument from experience, because they all knew that they received the Holy Spirit when they trusted by faith in Christ, then he goes to Scripture. Now, they were using the Old Testament to make their argument, say that you, that you needed to follow the law. So what Paul does is absolutely destroys their argument that you need to add works to salvation by quoting six Old Testament texts in verses uh, 6 through uh, 14. He argues that the children of Abraham are those who believe by faith. He quotes Genesis 15.6, Genesis 12.3, Deuteronomy 27.26, Habakkuk 2.4, Levi 18.5, Deuteronomy 21.23. By this point, Paul, Paul figures, well, I've destroyed their argument. I've shown from the Old Testament that a person, that Abraham was justified by faith before he was ever circumcised. The salvation has always been by faith. And then he moves in a little bit different direction because he believes this is what they're going to say. Okay, okay, okay. Abraham was saved by faith. But then, years later, the law comes. And so you could preach that gospel back in Abraham's day. But now that the law has come, you got to add the law onto the promise unto Abraham's promise. And so you need to believe in Christ by faith and you need to keep the law. He knows that this is how they're thinking. So in verses 15-18, through which we're going to go through this morning, he's going to show the superiority of the Abrahamic covenant over the Mosaic covenant. And then in in the rest of the chapter, which we'll look at next week, he's going to show the in inferiority of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, if I was going to give you a test, and I was going to say, which covenant's superior? Or if I was going to say, Mosaic Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant, and I give you three choices. 
Abrahamic is superior, Mosaic was superior, or they're equal, I wonder what you would put. I think a lot of people think one covenant's from God, another covenant's from God. This is how the Judaizers seem to be thinking. If God gives one, it's important. If God gives another, it's important. You gotta combine them together. Can you really talk in superiority? Here's how much superior the Abrahamic covenant is. And this is not saying that the Mosaic covenant is bad. It's in fact good. It's just not good for us. It's good for us in one way, but only in that it drives us to the Abrahamic covenant. It'd be like this. Um, I don't know how many basketball fans there are, but Steph Curry is a wonderful basketball player that plays for Golden State. Imagine for a minute that he had a towel boy, his own particular towel boy, that just wasn't very good. I mean, he, there'd be a little break in action. He'd come over, he'd be getting sweat in his eyes. And the kid would be turned around looking up in the stands. The towel's not ready. He's got to play with sweat in his eyes. So then Golden State says, you know what? We're going to splurge. We're going to get a good towel boy. In fact, we're going to get the best. This towel boy is ready. Every time there's a whistle, he's holding this towel out so Steph can come over, wipe his eyes. And all of a sudden, people are amazed, like, look at this towel boy. He's just on it. He hasn't screwed up yet. Now, what if they said, man, Steph's towel boy is so great. Let's just get rid of Steph. Let's just use the towel boy. Look how amazing he is. Everyone would say, well, that's stupid. Well, why is that stupid? Because the towel boy can't do what Steph Curry can do. The towel boy can help Steph play better a little bit because he can see a little clearer as he wipes his eyes. It's not even close. The superiority of the promise given to Abraham isn't even close to the law given through Moses. And so we're going to look at four points that he makes here. And then here's my charge to you. This is what I want you to get out of the sermon, to rest in the promises of God, not in your flesh, because... The covenant to Abraham is an unchangeable covenant, a unicovenant, an unsurpassable covenant, and an unaccommodating covenant. I don't know if I should have went with use, but I did, and so that's what we got for points. Let's look at the unchangeable covenant. Look at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So the covenants in Paul's day, the Galatians would know what a covenant was and how they would be ratified, and they would know that you can't change a covenant. That's what makes it a covenant. 
You can't annul it. You can't change it. You can't add to it. There's an agreement not to do it, to keep it the same. Whatever the promise is, that's the promise that stands. That's why marriage is a covenant before God. And so he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying even a human covenant, you can't change it. You can't add to it. You can't take away with it. You can't take away from it. So let's look at the covenant given to Abraham. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. I think there's a whole lot of comfort here. Genesis chapter 15. Let's look at this covenant that God made to Abraham. He already made it back in chapter 12, and now we see him ratifying it. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. And in the air of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So Abram's name, most of you know, is father of many. God has already promised him he's going to have descendants that will be so many, they're going to bless the entire earth. And he says, right now, I don't even have a son. The heir is not even my son. It's Eleazar of Damascus. Abraham, Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. You see how this is like a statement to him? No, your son's going to be the heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is amazing. What has Abraham done so far? <laughs> he's listened, and he's looked. And he said, okay, bam, counted righteous before God. This is an amazing covenant. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the, this land to possess. But he says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought all these, cut them in half, laid them each over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. What you have is God coming down to Abraham saying, I'm going to make a promise to you in a way you will understand. One of the ways they would ratify a covenant in 
those days is they would take animals, they'd cut them in half, they would separate them by a few feet, and the two parties that made an agreement would walk between the dead animals. And this is the physical picture and reminder of this promise made. This is the ratification of the promise. You know, we might sign something in our day. So you have this odd scene where they separate, they cut these animals, they separate them from each other. And then he says, and he, and he brought them our, let's see, verse 12 or verse 11. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As soon as you kill animals, vultures are coming. They're, they come down. Abraham drives them away. Abraham's probably thinking, this is weird. God was just talking to me. He told me to do this. Here, there, these animals come to me, cut them in half. I'm just supposed to sit here and watch the birds come down and chew on the carcasses. So he keeps chewing them away. But then, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will become sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So he's prophesying about going into Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Then look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, uh, so Abraham's out. Here's what he sees. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, your offspring to your offspring, I give this land. So what's the torch and the smoking fire pot? This is God walking through the covenant. Where's Abraham? Aren't two people supposed to walk through this covenant? That's not how this covenant works. This covenant works where God says, listen, this is what's going to happen and I'm going to walk through it. I'm promising you and I'm promising to myself I'm going to keep this promise. What sense? What is the Abraham? What type of covenant is the Abrahamic covenant? It's a covenant of promise. And God was the one that stands at the other end of the agreement and says, I will do it. The Abrahamic covenant works like this. God says, I will, I will, I will. And God does. The Mosaic covenant works like this. You shall, you shall, you shall, or else. You see the difference? Now if I give a test, I know which one you're going to put. I know which one 
you're going to want. And the point Paul is simply making is, do you really think if a human covenant can't be added to or annulled, you really think God made this covenant with Abraham? And that covenant is going to be added to or annulled? It's a good argument. I strike one up for Paul there. And then he points to the oneness of this covenant in a couple different ways. Mainly, oneness in Christ. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So I'm going to save you all the technical details. But the word offspring can mean corporate offspring, meaning many, or it can mean singular. And some scholars say, well, doesn't Paul know this? He can't use this as an argument because it could mean many or it could be mean one. Well, here's what Paul has going for him. The same Holy Spirit that spoke in Genesis to give the promise to Abraham is the same Holy Spirit working in Paul, which tells us it refers to Christ. One. I think it's a good argument. I'd go with it. So, his argument's this. Promises were made to Abraham. Promises, plural. But all those promises come to completion in the offspring. Singular, Christ. So God made a covenant with Abraham here. Time goes by. Law comes for a while. Christ comes. And what he's saying is, so if Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, do we really want to give primacy, go back to the law now that Christ has come? He's died on the cross for sins. He's guaranteed the promises for everyone. He's saying, do you really want to go back when the completion of this promise finds its yes and amen in Christ? Now we're going to go back to the law? So it's a unit covenant in the way we just looked at. It's only with God. It's fulfilled in Christ through His seed. You know, if you go back to the first gospel preached in the Bible, the first good news for sinners comes in Genesis 3.15. And you know what they're talking about there? A singular seed. Listen. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between Satan and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, the promise of salvation in Christ actually extends before Abraham. This seed is already on the table. We find out that seed is Abraham's seed and that seed culminates and is completed in Christ. 
So we see that the completion of the promise is fulfilled in Christ. Now, we, we talked about this the last couple of weeks, but here we're just going to continue to see it. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. If there's anybody that is going to receive Abraham's promises, land, which will be the new heavens and new earth, family, family of God, uh, blessing, which is uh, the Spirit being given to those who trust by faith in Christ, the only person who can receive any of these promises is those who are in Christ. All the promises of God. So so here's what you need to know in your mind. God gives Christ everything. He's the heir of all the promises. God says, I give my promises to my Son. I give my blessing to my Son, to my offspring. That's why in Romans 8.17, we're told, and if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The way you become an heir of God is in Christ, not in the law, not in anyone else. This is why there is no salvation outside of Christ. God gives all of His blessings, all of His inheritance to His Son, and you get united to God's Son by faith in Him. So His argument is, one, do you want to go back? And don't you want to be in on the place where blessing actually is? Look at number three. It's an unsurpassable covenant. It can't be added to. Nothing can be taken away from it. He says, this is what I mean. And it it might seem a little confusing here, but we'll work through it. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So let's just talk about this for a minute. Remember, they're saying, they're probably saying, well, yeah, Abraham didn't have the law, but then the law came after that, so now we need to follow the law. And his argument is, this law that came 430 years after. Just take a stop here for a minute. Some people are going to point to this 430 years mentioned here as proof that our Bible has errors in it. You want to know why? Because it was actually 645 years after Abraham was given the promise that the law came through Moses. So, can't trust the Bible, right? Can't believe this. If the numbers are wrong, how can we trust it? Well, whenever we run into these, 
We have to look closely, see what's there. Now here's the deal. There's 215 years from the time Abraham was given his promise to the time Jacob was given the promise. So the God of the Old Testament is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is the last one in the line that hears this Abrahamic promise given to him. There's 215 years from Abraham to Jacob. So the last time God spoke promise in a sense, in a technical way, take 215 minus 645, what do you have? You have 430. And so what he was simply saying is, is if you look at the extent, if you want to think this way, where the promise is is through Abraham, through this extent of God speaking it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the law came 430 years afterwards. The point, though, is, well, the point there is God's Word is true. But the point Paul's making is the law that comes later cannot change, as we've already seen, the covenant made to Abraham. Uh, they would like to think that you can at least add to it. They, they certainly wouldn't say that the law destroys the promise to Abraham, but they thought the law came to explain it more. Ah, God wanted to give us, help us understand it better. They go together, they connect, which leads us to the fourth point that the Abrahamic covenant is an unaccommodating covenant. The law and promise are incompatible. It can't be added to it. Yes, the law functions in a way to emphasize the Abrahamic covenant, just like the towel boy helps Steph Curry a little bit to see a little clearer and to highlight the main event so the law cannot be added to the this covenant with Abraham. <clears throat> Paul says they're not the same in nature. Look at what he says, verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, he's playing hypothetical. He says, let's just say that the inheritance does come by the law. He says, if that's true, it no longer comes by the promise. Got to get rid of Abraham. What you can't do is meld them. They're like oil and water. If the promise comes through the law, then it doesn't come through Abraham, so you can't put them together. That's his point. But rather, it says God gave it to Abraham by promise. Just look at the words in verse 18 for a second. Do you earn an inheritance? Does it make sense that the inheritance is going to come through the law? Through a man working for it? You don't earn your inheritance. How about a promise? Someone gives you a promise. You don't earn a promise. Look at the word gave. 
God gave it to Abraham by promise. You just look at the words. You can see that the law does not match with the promise. Paul disagrees. He says they're not the same in nature. In fact, if you add anything to the promise, you get one big mess. Every cult, every heretical form of Christianity, what do they do? They come to the promise of God in Christ. The grace of God in Christ to be received by faith. And they either subtract from it or they add to it. If you want to add works to your salvation, you don't have salvation. It can't be added to grace. You can't have works and grace adding to your salvation. You can have works after grace as the result of your salvation. You can't have it as the grounds of your salvation. These false teachers came and said, you guys are resting in Christ and you can't rest in Christ. You have to work it. You have to be afraid. You cannot rest in Christ as was their message. The Gospel is that you and I are saved the same way Abraham was. We listened to a promise that God unilaterally spoke and believed it. When then we find out our belief even comes from God. So that we can truly say, when God says, it shall be, it will be. And we can know for a fact, because we've looked at the law, that when man says, I will do, he won't do. This is what we know about ourselves. We're not like God. We don't keep our promises. We don't live righteous lives. But God in His grace saved us. I mean, think of Abraham for a minute. Just This is amazing. Read Genesis this month and just look at this. Look at how many times, you know, Abraham's commended for his faith. Good thing we're not saved by perfect faith. Right? Because Abraham's faith wasn't perfect. And neither is mine. It's the straight, it's the perfection of the Savior that saves us, not the perfection of our faith. But look at, Ab- look at how many times Abraham tries to fulfill God's promise in his own flesh. You know, oh, I'm going to go into this town and they're going to see how hot my wife is. Then they're going to kill me and take her. Oh, wait a minute. God told Abraham that he's going to have a kid and he doesn't have a kid yet. So how is he going to die? So he starts lying. He starts scheming. What? You expect God to give him a baseball bat to the, you know, God's upset with us, right? You know what it says? Abraham walked out of there with more money and goods because God was tormenting them. God rewards his sin, it looks like. Happens twice, in fact. And then they get the great idea. Well, we believe God's going to give us a son, but it's going to come through Hagar. So they go try through Hagar. That messes a family up. You do that. So here he is. God says, 
All right, I'm ready to give you a son. He goes, no, there's my son right there. And God says, no, that's not my promise. I told you I was going to give you a son. How often are we just like that? Are you resting in the promises of God for you? Are you striving to make things happen in your own strength? Life's hard. Abraham's life wasn't easy. Your life is not easy. And you have a choice. You can rest in the promises of God in the context of a church that's going to remind you of the promises of God and help build your faith up, or you can do it on your own. How often do we separate ourselves during hard times and say, I just got to pull myself up, get myself going? The same nature is in us. Let me remind you in closing of Galatians 2.19. Here's how the Christian lives. He says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. We died to the law because when Christ died under the law, His death was our death. Verse 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's how you ought to live this week. And the life I now live in the flesh, so this is here and now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So my prayer is, is that you leave here strengthened in the God who keeps His promises and the God who says, you want to be strong? Well, get weak and rely on me. Be a beggar all week long, asking God to give you the strength to live your life. Father, the best promises in the universe are all come through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray you would humble us. If any of us came here this morning with pride in who we are, or what we know, or morality, or whatever, Father, I pray that we would be reminded that for those of us who are saved, we were saved by grace. All of us who are trusting in Christ, Father, help us know that we are a fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham that Gentiles would be saved. Lord, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You and how Your Word just shows us that it's perfect and it's pure and it's truth. Lord, I pray we would love it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.